Catch HBO Max's new limited series, The Murders at White House Farm, now streaming. Based on the shocking true story, in 1985, five family members were murdered at their isolated farm. Initial evidence pointed towards a murder-suicide committed by one of the family members. However, one detective refused to accept this, diving deeper into the evidence and unraveling the mysterious layers of The Murders at White House Farm, now streaming only on HBO Max. What we have is raw news footage from WSB-TV. We have 17,000 hours of raw news footage. So far, I've identified 614 clips, but we have about another 150 tapes to scrub through. Um, The whole time I've been working on this collection, I've been thinking, someone, someday, someone is going to come along and do this. It was you guys. Step aboard our TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Where are we going? Down to the sub-basement. High-density storage vault. It's like a roller coaster. Yes. I can make it go fast if you'd like. It's a 30,000 square foot facility, which we keep at 50 degrees Fahrenheit with a relative humidity of 30%. 32 feet from floor to the ceiling. Actually, the top of our ceiling there is the floor of the second floor. Prior to us building this building here, it was a um, a Native American settlement of some sort here, if I understand what people have told me over the years. Everything is shelved down here by size and then by barcodes. How many records do you think you guys have on the Atlanta child murders? In Atlanta, another body was discovered today, the 23rd. At police task force headquarters, there are 27 faces on the wall, 26 murdered, one missing. We do not know the person or persons that are responsible, therefore we do not have the motive. From Tenderfoot TV and House Tough Works in Atlanta. Like 11 other recent victims in Atlanta, Rogers apparently was asphyxiated. Atlanta is unlikely to catch the killer unless he keeps on killing. This is Atlanta Monster. Sketching back then wasn't what it is today. I mean, some of these sketches they come out with are better than photographs. Back then, you know, you worked with what you had, and it was a pretty good sketch. We had a composite of of who this guy would be. What did it look like, do you remember? Well, it was a black male with bushy hair. I remember the composite sketch very well. This is a folder of paperwork I kept from um, my time as administrator coordinator of the Atlanta child murder cases. It was an animosity between uh, the local police and the FBI. One of the main things was the mayor, Maynard Jackson. He says, I want every living FBI agent. My police department is basically incompetent and they can't solve it. We need the FBI to solve it. So he threw his department under the bus. None of us want to get involved because it looked like just a local mess. This is Jim Procopio, but he goes by popcorn. He worked for the FBI alongside Mike McComas during the time of the Atlanta child murders. Mike actually introduced me to him. I'd probably be interested in talking to Procopio. Yeah, Popcorn's a good guy. Now, if you can get into his treasure trove, he's got boxes of stuff. Popcorn dealt with all the records and files in the FBI. And just like Mike McComas, he stressed the importance of a composite sketch they received early on in their investigation from a kid who told police that a man had tried to abduct him. Well, it was a black male with bushy hair. I remember the composite sketch very well. 
After interviewing the kid, they were able to form a detailed sketch of the suspect, a black male with bushy hair. After only a few minutes with popcorn, you get the impression that this guy doesn't forget a thing. And it goes back to another um, cultural, socioeconomic issue. When Maynard Jackson became mayor, first black mayor in Atlanta, the first thing he said was, I want to make the police department more brown. The police department up at that time had some black officers, several who were majors and above, but it was mainly a white police department. Well, when the white officers heard that, they saw they saw the handwriting on the wall. If you were white, you're not going to rise rapidly in this department. It's going to be black. A lot of the older ones, they said, we'll see you. They retired. So consequently, they lost many of their senior officers, the best homicide investigator. Then they had a big cheating scandal in the police department. They found out that a lot of the black recruits in the police academy were given the answers to tests. So that was another major scandal. So the, the police department was left in 78, 79, 80, relatively new and inexperienced. So I guess some of the homicide detectives were not that experienced, and they missed the signs that th there were commonalities in the 8 to 10 to 12. They had, by the time the Bureau got in, they were up to 14. 10 found, 4 missing. Further, the FBI does not investigate murders. Murder is not a federal crime. If it's committed on a government reservation, it is. If a certain federal authority, is, it is. If it's, it's killed in the commission of a civil rights violation, it is. But we don't investigate. Bureau doesn't investigate murders like you have on the street every day. So we had no jurisdiction. We went to the Atlanta Police Department and says, here, we're here to help you. And, you know, we were greeted by, yeah, right. We want all your files. So I went through all the cases we assigned Usually two agents or one agent per victim, and we had 14 of the victims at the time. So we said, go out and redo the case. Look through it. Give it a fresh look. Come back and tell us what you find. <laughs> About 10 of the 12 of them come back and said, these look like local crimes. And we were pretty much convinced that it were, they were all local homicides that the APD had bungled. We didn't see any pattern. We didn't see anything. The FBI, along with local police, were not convinced they were dealing with a serial killer. But as the death toll of black children was growing, they began to recognize similarities in the murders. It would start with a child going missing, for days, weeks, and sometimes even months. And the FBI became involved in many of the searches. Popcorn recalled the first big search he was a part of. There were a thousand searches all over the city. One place was Red Wine Road in South Fulton County. If you go there today, it's right off 285. There's a huge shopping center with a Target and a whole bunch of stores. Back then, it was Woods. About 3 o'clock, the team down on Red Wine Road says, we found skeletal remains. So everybody hauled ass, and it was like being in Vietnam again. There were the news choppers overhead. They got wind of where we were. All the news choppers were overhead. So I got there there about 5 o'clock. And I'm walking, and I park my car on Red Wine Road, and I walk in the woods, and something catches my eye at 11 o'clock, and I walk over, and it was a skull and more human remains. So we had two human remains within 100 feet of one another. And this led to one of the most bizarre episodes. About 100 feet below both bodies, we found a Playboy magazine. It was that week's Playboy magazine. It came out that Wednesday. This was Friday. So we found the Playboy magazine, and there was a sticky substance between the pages. I'll let you decide what that was. So he immediately fantasized, the investigators. The killer came back, came down here, 
to the site of the murders, masturbated, then took off. This is key evidence. We packaged it up, raced it out to the airport, gave it to the captain of a Delta jet heading from Washington, D.C. An agent picked it up as soon as the plane landed, rushed to the FBI laboratory. They gave it to a lab, they developed prints and identified the sticky substance. We didn't have any of the prints on file. So they sent it to the APD to look at, through their files. Within an hour, they identified the print. So we went in, we arrested the guy, we searched his house. We uh, brought him to the bureau, we polygraphed him. He passed the polygraph. What the hell were you doing down there? He says, well, my wife just had a baby. I went down there that afternoon. Now, during that time, we were part of the vice president, George Bush's task force. Everything I wrote went to a unit chief at the bureau, went to the director, to the attorney general, to George Bush. George Bush read it. So the one thing he asked us was, please don't tell my wife. We said, you goddamn idiot. Do you know the vice president of the United States knows what you did when you went into the woods and you're worried your wife's going to find out? By the way, we codenamed that. It was known as the Woodwhacker. Popcorn's first big lead went nowhere. Popcorn had found the bodies of 11-year-old Christopher Richardson and 11-year-old Earl Terrell. Christopher had been missing for eight months, and Earl had been missing for six months. To me, on the surface, these cases seemed open and shut. A Playboy magazine with semen on it was found near the bodies, with the suspect's fingerprints on it. But after an extensive interrogation, the suspect passed a polygraph test. And despite all the bizarre circumstances, the FBI was convinced that this man was not involved in the murders. So they moved on. Both Popcorn and Mike McComas told me that when the FBI got involved in these cases, there was an extreme tension brewing in the city of Atlanta. Of course, the blacks wanted it to be somebody white, and the whites wanted it to be somebody black. And I can't speak for the rest of the Bureau, but my partner and I, Larry Ellington, we talked about it a lot. First off, our profilers said that um, serial killers rarely cross races. They'll kill in their own race. And all these kids were black. Popcorn and McComas both mentioned FBI profilers, the people who formulate an idea of who the killer is, who the FBI should be looking for. And there was one characteristic that stood out to me immediately. It had to be a black guy. A white man cannot go into a black neighborhood, pick up a kid, put him in his car, and drive off without anybody seeing him. If there's a crime scene, then the media was just unbelievable. And with all of the attention this case was getting, it was almost impossible to get into a predominantly black neighborhood and not be challenged or approached or whatever if you were white. It just doesn't happen. In fact, when we went into black neighborhoods during the investigation, everybody on the street was out on their front porch as soon as we appeared in the neighborhood. There was one place that I think is gone now. It was a housing project. They had what they call the Bat Patrol. And these were adults that walked around with baseball bats and looking for suspicious characters or protecting the community, whatever. They call them the Bat Patrol. We were over in this housing area. We had two young um, uh, black kids uh, that had supposedly seen something we thought. So Larry and I were tasked to go over and pick up these two children and their mother. So here we are in this, uh, the brown Ford again, and Larry's driving. I'm in the passenger side. And we have the mother sitting in the middle and the two black kids in the back seat near the windows. And two young boys, and I, don't, I think they were like 10 or something, 8, 10, 12, I don't know, somewhere around that. And we didn't get two blocks before we were boxed in by about four, three or four different police cars. 
And we weren't proned out that it was coming to that before we finally got them to look at our identification. Hey, we're FBI agents. And because somebody had called in, there's two white guys with uh, some black kids in the car. So it was tough getting in and out of certain areas. And so we were kind of convinced this guy had to be black. He had to be black. We just couldn't figure out how he was getting them in the car. Was this a skewed opinion coming from only white males? Was it that impossible for a white person to walk around the inner city of Atlanta in the early 80s? I don't know. I asked Eric and Jasper Cameron. They grew up in Atlanta during that time. If anything, they would know. Personally, I felt like it had to be somebody that could move around in, in, in the community. So therefore, I felt like it had to probably be somebody black or somebody who wouldn't draw suspicion. Because, you know, over there where we live, a white person walking around over there, they are going to be, you know, it's going to draw attention because that wasn't happening then. Now, now you go over there, it's, it's like, you know, everybody. But back then, nah, you know, it, 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 it would have drew too much attention. So I always felt like it probably was somebody who could move around pretty easy, you know, undetected without really causing a lot of suspicion. But not everyone agreed on that. This is Bernard Parks. He grew up in Atlanta, too, and was also a child at the time of the murders. There's certain guys that, you know, that they were around. I mean, you know, it was like, there weren't a lot of white guys, right? But but there were some. Yeah, I mean, like, you grew up, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, one or two white guys that went to my school, right? But that's just because their family didn't have no money, right? So they were just around, and so you kind of accepted them. But, you know, I always say, you know, they got cousins, they got friends, they got people that hung around and we accepted. It wouldn't have been normal, though, for in that time for a black guy just to walk up and be accepting of a white guy without somebody understanding what's happening, right? I mean, it's just, it, that just wasn't normal. I mean, you just question, period, because you're in my community and this ain't your community. I asked Monica Pearson, the former news anchor in Atlanta. Her memory was crystal clear. They weren't looking for a murderer. They were profiling. They decided that that's what it was. And you have to keep all options open. I think anytime you don't open up and cast a wide net, you lose the opportunity of finding someone else who might be involved. It's as simple as that. You have to look at all the possibilities. And if you start out by saying, it has to be a black person who did it because these were black children, then as that's the reason why so many people in the black community thought it was the Klan. I think that's short-sighted on their part because you could easily have a white man in that community dressed as black people dressed, and no one would notice him because he just looks like a black person. He's in this community. Now, most white people would not go into that community because they would stand out like a sore thumb. But if you assimilate from the walk to the clothing, to the attitude, to the speech, and don't say it can't be done. I'm just throwing it out there. No. I think that's short-sighted to say a white person couldn't do it. A white person could, if you know the community. You had a, a white guy couple, graduate a couple of years ago from Morehouse College as a valedictorian. <laughs> white folks go into the black community all the time to buy drugs. And they don't have a problem fitting in. If you look like the people who live there 
and your skin is just a little lighter than somebody else's, it's not going to stand out. I think they're wrong on that. From her perspective, the possibility of a white killer was ruled out way too quickly. I couldn't help but think she made a great point. The one thing I remember most about the missing and murdered children, I still see that visual every day, is Maynard Jackson sitting there with piles of cash offering a reward for any information on who was committing these crimes. Here's $100,000, and it's all yours. Most gangster picture ever. Him sitting with that money on the desk. I think that's where they got the shot from for... Uh, Ransom. You remember when Ransom they came and put Mel Gibson, he put all that money on the table and he was like, now nah, I'm putting this bounty on you. <laughs> that was Maynard's line. <laughs> I read about this over and over in my research. The reward money. It started with $100,000 from the city, but private donations, including one from Muhammad Ali, brought it to over 500000 Today, that would be around $1.5 million. As Atlanta struggled to find the killer, the city needed more and more money. One solution was a benefit concert. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Frank Sinatra will be joining Sammy Davis Jr. on stage at the Atlanta Civic Center. The two figured to draw a standing room only crowd for the March 10 benefit concert to help the investigation into the crimes against Atlanta's children. The city held a huge benefit concert to raise money for the investigation at the Atlanta Civic Center. But the FBI was on high alert for the killer. I was convinced that that night he would respond to that. And I was convinced in my mind that he would drop a body in the fountain right there. Frank Sinatra arrived here at Charlie Brown Airport just a few minutes before 6 o'clock. He's now on his way to the Atlanta Civic Center, where he'll join Sammy Davis Jr. for tonight's benefit concert. Sammy Davis Jr. picked up a phone and volunteered to help Atlanta. Today, the superstar arrived here on his private jet. Such a horrendous tragedy as this affects, as I said, it certainly affects all of America. I was there that night, and we had cops and helicopters. There were cars everywhere, police cars everywhere. No one could have gotten in with a body. It started with police dogs sniffing the entire Civic Center looking for explosives. The mayor's office called this routine. Were you guys prepared to catch somebody that night? Oh, hell yeah, that's why we roll out. Officials have been preparing for weeks for this night. Extra security guards have been hired and extra police officers have been put on patrol here with just one objective, to keep an eye on children. It was overwhelming. The Atlanta Police Department out in full force. You had the GBI. I know the FBI was there, the task force. Everybody was there. There was no way anyone could have gotten in there and done anything. There were so many news people here coming from all over the world, Chicago, New York, Hamburg, London. So many, they had to be regulated to a room in the basement. Meanwhile, upstairs, Atlanta's finest had started to arrive. But the high points of the show weren't outside. They were in here. I've got the world on a screen. Sitting on that rainbow. I've got the string around. Didn't respond, didn't do anything. Got a lot of publicity. I thought he would respond somehow. He didn't. And while Sinatra was entertaining as he sang, he was most touching when he spoke. 
More of my tears are shed for the brothers and sisters and playmates of the victims to whom terror has become an unwelcome companion. And to all of the fine, decent people in Atlanta who are frightened by day and doubly frightened by night. You have my prayers, that is, and that it should pass without further bloodshed. The city as a whole was banding together to catch this killer. And every single law enforcement agency was working around the clock. All the murders were of black children from the inner city of Atlanta. And they were disappearing from their own neighborhoods in their own local hangouts. One popular place in the city at that time for kids to hang out was called the Omni, an arcade room with food and a movie theater. But the Omni was also becoming a place where some kids were last seen. That's what we did. It was a game room in the Omni. And we literally would go to that game room and go to the arcades and all that. So that's what, like video games and stuff. Like that, that's what we did. We went to the Omni, hung out at the Omni. Friday night, date night, get out of the house night, and the Omni is packed with youngsters. The Omni Complex, a mixture of fine stores, sporting events, movies, and game rooms. A popular place for the inner city kid to hang out. That's why the special task force became interested in the complex as a meeting place. Investigators first started looking for some type of connection back in February. This sign went up today at Electronic America. The manager doesn't want anyone 17 or under in here once 7 o'clock hits. The owners realize such strict rules hurt their business, especially when their business attracts mainly teenagers. Catch HBO Max's new limited series, The Murders at White House Farm, now streaming, an infamous true crime story. Over 30 years ago, three generations of one family were murdered at their isolated farm in England. Initial evidence pointed the finger at the daughter of the family, who had a history of mental illness. However, one detective refused to accept this. As he dove deeper into the investigation, he uncovered new evidence that shed suspicion on a different family member. This six-part limited series uncovers the mystery behind what happened that fateful night. The Murders at White House Farm, now streaming only on HBO Max. Hey, it's Bobby Bones, executive producer of Make It Up As We Go, the brand new podcast from Audio Up and iHeartRadio, brought to you exclusively by Unilever's Nor and Magnum Brands. The story follows the songwriter's journey as well as the songs themselves and how they make it to country radio. From executive producer Miranda Lambert and creators Scarlett Berg and Jared Gutstead, a story inspired by the competitive world of Nashville writing rooms, featuring original music by Scarlett Burke, director and executive producer, featuring some of the biggest names in country, including Nicole Gallagher. And everything I'm working out is everything just working out. It's feeling like a Monday on a Saturday night. Make it up as we go only on the iHeart Podcast Network in association with Audio Up Media, created by Scarlett Burke and Jared Gustad.
the 1980s saw the rise in arcades and video games. But another trend, and one I didn't know about, was the 1980s fascination with psychics. In fact, psychics even played a role in the Atlanta child murders. I heard a lot of weird stories surrounding this case, but so far, this seemed the most bizarre, a true example of law enforcement grasping at straws. Police are now working with more than one psychic to solve the cases of six murdered and six missing children. This is how the nationally known psychics spent their Friday the 13th. They are visiting Atlanta courtesy of the National Enquirer. Yes, the same National Enquirer with those sensational headlines that can be seen at most supermarket counters. As the psychics scrambled through the woods where four of the 20 murdered children were found, psychic Mickey Dane of Miami kicked off her shoes. She asked reporters to feel how hot her feet were and then declared that two more bodies might be found nearby. There is something here. Some, some child out there is trying to tell us to go further into this. Jonathan Bell, whose brother Yosef is among the victims, also served as a guide. A freelance artist was there too, sketching psychics' descriptions of suspects. I do not care at this point what they think of me. I'm here to get a killer off the street if it takes one person or 5,000. My big thing is that um, if I have to do it alone, I will. I feel that they are afraid that if one person does it, how will they feel? And I can understand that, but I'm here more so for the children. And the, I do not want the reward money. That I will put on in writing. I do not want the money. I'm not here for the publicity. I'm just like them. I want the killer off the street. One psychic gave police and news stations a detailed description of who the Atlanta child murderer was. He knows in the daytime what he's dealing with, but at night he's not really sure. So he kind of stays to himself in his apartment. He has a television set. There's no guns up there, no nothing. Um, he's very smooth talking when he does talk, which is very seldom. And he's been seen by a lot of people. Oh, yes. I, there's no doubt in my mind that he's walked side beside probably some of the parents of these children. He's shrewd, he's methodical. You're not dealing with a guy with 164 IQ. He's clean, he's neat, he's above suspicion. You're dealing with a methodical, a man that's um, systematic but angry now, getting more frustrated. I cannot stop him. I don't have the authority or the power. At the University of Georgia in Athens is the Walter J. Brown Media Archives, a huge multi-story facility that holds hundreds of thousands of archive documents. In the early 1980s, this was arguably the biggest news story, especially in Atlanta. I made a call to Mary Miller, one of the archivists, to see if we could access their news archives related to the case. And as it turns out, they have thousands of hours of raw news footage from WSB-TV, the local Atlanta station, Material that hasn't been viewed by the public since the early 1980s. In that time, nothing was digital. It was all on film or tape. But the team at the University of Georgia worked tirelessly to gather and digitize as much material as possible. And then they gave us a personal tour of their vault. Everything is shelved down here by size and then by barcode. So each thing that you'll notice here, each item has a barcode on it and each shelf has a barcode and the items are linked together so it gives us a barcode and we, we work by that. What we do with videotapes is a little different from what we do with print materials. The videotapes will have to go into coolers because they need to be acclimated from the cold, dry environment 
when they move upstairs, it's a little warmer and a lot more um, humid. So they have to go in the cooler so the temperature can come up slowly, they can acclimate. January 2012, when we opened to the public, we've probably pulled about 150 to 160,000 items, and we've yet not been able to find everything that's been requested. Like I said, he's going to start coming this way, so we're going to need to start walking back this way. While searching the archives, I came across several news stories involving strange leads. This one in particular caught my attention. According to FBI documents, on January 8, 1981, an anonymous white male called the Rockdale County Sheriff's Department, claiming that he placed the body of Luby Jeter out on Sigmund Road. Then he threatened to leave the body of another child. But this time, the child would be white. An unidentified man who has been calling the Rockdale County Sheriff's Department for the last few weeks. That man has told deputies they could find Atlanta's missing children on Sigmund Road. And we've learned that recently, He's also called and said he was going to harm some of the children in this neighborhood. When the Rockdale County Sheriff's Department arrived at the scene this morning, all they knew was they had something already very familiar to Atlanta investigators. The body of a black male around 14 years old lying just off Sigmund Road. There was no apparent sign of a struggle. Sheriff Vic Davis would only say today his department and the others involved are again very interested in tape conversations with an unidentified male caller the most recent call coming the day before the body was found. The man told Rockdale deputies victims could be found along Sigmund Road. Someone was calling the local sheriff's department, claiming to be the killer, even declaring where the next body would be found. But it seemed at that time, the police didn't give this much merit. Some detectives say since this latest body was found so far from Atlanta, they may be dealing with a copycat murderer. Or they say the killer or killers may have known that the Rockdale Sheriff was receiving crank calls about the missing and murdered children, and so just decided to dump a body here to taunt police. We're taking a closer look at the cause at this time, but we still feel that maybe just the publicity drew the actual killer to this area to dump a body. Sheriff Vic Davis hopes today's discovery and the calls are just coincidental. Then I found another story. The video was of a live newscast featuring a church minister in Atlanta named Earl Polk. He voluntarily called into a local news station to present this story, and he was making some very eerie claims. His alleged interaction with the Atlanta child murderer. I have received several calls from a person identifying himself as the one responsible for these crimes. I did notify the authorities, but I should like to remind you that I stand ready to minister to you, and we are protected and covered by the Constitution of the United States of America. I stand ready to be directed by you as to a place of meeting. I will minister to your needs, and you will be protected and you will be covered. For one thing, the voice on the phone was not the same one that has called before, so Polk says his first step was to determine how much the man knew. I said, how many of the children or crimes are you involved in? He said, well, uh, let's put it this way, the first three, somebody helped me with them. I said, well, is he not helping any longer? He said, no. I said, why did he quit? He said, well, he got afraid. Him and his wife got afraid and he left, left town. 
Polk says the man told him he could prove he was the killer because he could show Polk a piece of clothing belonging to Curtis Walker. Walker's body was found just two weeks ago in a river about a quarter mile from Polk's church. So I said, tell me how you got the kids to get in your car. He said, well, I've got a van. And he says, I tell them I've got paint jobs to do, and they get in the, in, in the van to go to, uh, to paint. Polk then questioned the man about his motives. I said, well, what makes you do this? What, what caused you to do these, these crimes? Could you tell me that? And he said, well, I'm, I'm impelled or I'm controlled or forced by voices to do it. I said, well, why are you calling me now? Are the voices uh, released you so you could call me? He said, well, I don't hear the voices right now. I said, uh, uh, why are you turning yourself in or why are you wanting to come see me now? He said, well, I'm tired of running, I'm out of money, and my wife is afraid. The man told Polk he was speaking from or near a pub on Ponce de Leon Avenue. Polk then asked him if they could meet at his church on Flat Shoals Road, and the man agreed. About a half hour later, a van pulled into the parking lot across the street, but immediately sped off. Polk says he thinks the man spotted some police cars at a nearby shopping center and may have thought he was walking into a trap. My purpose of even telling the story was hopefully that he would know that there was no trap set up and that perchance he may yet try to make contact. After hearing the many stories from the FBI and looking back on the news archives, I started to get a sense of how the general public must have felt in 1980. Completely confused. An incriminating Playboy magazine. Psychic involvement. Bizarre phone calls. And that mysterious composite sketch of a black guy with bushy hair. But none of it was amounting to anything. The media coverage of Atlanta's hunt for a serial killer was gripping the entire nation. But things were about to change when a local Atlanta policeman found what appeared to be the first signs of physical evidence. We had a body, a young, young boy on the, behind a building, and we found a fiber on him, just a, a one fiber. You guys found that? Yes, and uh, I, 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 I removed it off of his shirt, and I think it was blue, maybe a, a quarter of an inch long. It looked like a, uh, maybe a sweater or a blanket or something, just a piece of, of lint took the fiber to the crime lab. That information leaked out through high-ranking people to the media, and lo and behold, it wasn't me, you know. And uh, they were putting anything they could grasp. They were, the media were, at that time, you're talking about vultures. I mean, everybody wanted to be the one to know the, the little tidbit that nobody else knew. The Atlanta Journal came out in early February with a story. The police are finding hairs and fibers on the victim. Well, guess where the next victim wound up? Stripped and in the river. And we were getting victims every 10 days. We're starting to see bodies uh, in several different counties. We probably need to come up with a method or come up with an idea or a thought to where we can at least direct this guy, you know, keep him from spreading bodies everywhere uh, in hopes, of course, of catching him. What I thought was the dumbest idea I ever heard, when Mike McComas and his partner, Larry Ellington, came to me and says, we got an idea, and I said, okay, what's your idea? And they said, we want to cover the bridges because it's obvious he's throwing a body off the bridge. And I said, why is that obvious? I didn't know at the time McComas grew up in a small town in Tennessee on a river. And I grew up in New York City. We didn't know what rivers were. The reason is, is I don't think he would drive 
down to the river uh, because the chances of getting caught. And besides that, I was raised on the, on a river uh, in ten East Tennessee, and I know that get something to float down the river, you've got to get it out in the middle of the water or you stand a good chance it's just going to come right back to the, to the uh, bank. He knew that if you threw something from the shore, it eventually floats back to land. But if you throw something off of a bridge in the middle of the river, it'll float down the river. And I says, how do you know which bridge? He said, well, we're going to pick 14. I said, how do you know you're going to pick the right, right one? And they looked at me and said, you got a better idea, dumb shit? And I said, not at the moment. There was two, two rivers then. There was the South River and the Chattahoochee River. Uh, and I recommended that we stake those out, um, the bridges, because I felt that that was uh, how he was uh, getting the bodies into the water, uh, was throwing them off river bridges, because it would be quick, it'd be fast. He would get them in the water, and there's a good chance they'd float downstream quite a ways. For my idea, I got rewarded of um, kind of supervising the detail. Uh, it was started every night around 6 p.m., and we quit every morning at about 6. It started toward the end of April, 1st of May, and we gave them 30 days. And we actually had about 140 people total because we had to cover uh, all night and we had to cover weekends. So we had, we had 140 people assigned. And we were burning 140 bodies a night, too, because we had uh, so many bridges on the South River and so many bridges on the Chattahoochee River. And what we did was is we had two people uh, on the ground under one side of the bridge, two people on the other, and then we had two chase cars uh, per bridge. Um, so if anybody dropped something in, the people underneath would notify the chase cars, and, and that's the way it happened. It was, it was quite taxing. I mean, it, uh, I mean, you're going seven days a week, 12 hours a day. It's, it's tough. I was single. The married guys, I don't know how with families, I don't know how they did it, but uh, uh, I was single at the time, so it didn't really have that much of an um, effect on my home life, of course. Social life, yeah, but not the home life. But right. um, like I said, we were using 140 bodies a night. As a matter of fact, well, there were so many bodies that we had to go to the police academy, and they gave us several recruit classes that hadn't graduated yet. So the only thing they were allowed to carry was batons and flashlights because they weren't qualified on firearms. So, I mean, that's, that's how many bodies we were burning, and that's why they decided that it was going to have to come to an end because we were just really wearing out man hours, and nothing came of it. As an officer with the APD at that time, Mike Tovey remembers this bridge stakeout. And we had just about every bridge, I think every bridge in Atlanta area covered. They canceled our off days, and we worked ungodly hours like five to five in the morning, no off days, and we had people under the bridge. We had people on the water, posed as fishermen, in just about every bridge in Atlanta and even Fulton County. We patrolled it in rafts. We had our guns in the boat with us, and, and really we were just grasping at straws, but it was apparent these bodies were coming over the bridge. On the very last night of the bridge stakeout, something happened that would change the course of their investigation forever. Last night, last bridge. That night we set up knowing this, this would be the last day. Uh, I had about six or eight bridges, I can't remember, that I kind of kept an eye on. And, and if anybody had any problems or if somebody didn't show up or, you know, logistical problems, whatever happened, and I was to be notified uh, regardless. 
I was at a small bridge south, and I heard some radio traffic. And at the time, our radios weren't as good as they are today. And I remember getting on the radio and, and asking, you know, what's, what's going on? And all I heard was something about a splash. I had a 77 Ford LTD with a 400 big block in it. And I can tell you, I scorched tires getting up there because I said something's happening and I just felt it. We went racing to the James Jackson Bridge. And uh, as I was heading that way, the traffic started coming in a little clearer because I was getting closer. The gist of the story was is that the splash was heard by the police cadets, the guys that had to leave the uh, academy early to work with us. We had two people under both sides of the bridge, and of course, we kept them hidden out so that they, they, were, they brought everything they needed for the night because they weren't going anywhere. And then in, in close proximity, we had a chase car on each side of the bridge. And they, they too blended in so that they couldn't be seen. When they looked up on the bridge from under it to see what caused the splash, the car appeared to be just starting up again like it had been stopped and it was going two or three miles an hour then crossed the bridge, circled around, I think, a convenience store. Then as he came back, and that's when our cars tagged him. We went up the exit ramp, went across the bridge, and then went down, saw the cars sitting on the other side. They were on the southbound side, and we were heading north. And I saw that there was several blue lights over there with a white station wagon that was pulled over. Since I was supervising it and I had the ranking Atlanta police officer on scene with me, when we got there, we were immediately briefed. I asked, did they get his ID? And they said, yes, he was still sitting in his car. And I still had my composite sketch and I pulled it out. He had these little glasses on and I drew the glasses and I held it up and I said, anybody recognize this guy? And it was Wayne Williams to the T. I mean, it just, it was just Wayne. Next time on Atlanta Monster. It was the pre-dawn hours of May 22nd. The Atlanta Police Bureau and the FBI had been staking out bridges along the Chattahoochee River for the last two months. An Atlanta recruit heard a splash. Several radio messages and a flurry of activity soon had a car stopped. In it was 23-year-old Wayne Williams. People who know Williams say he is a highly intelligent young man, a good student when he was in school. I went up to him and identified myself as a special agent of the FBI. And I asked him immediately if he knew why he was being pulled over. And he said, yes, it's probably because about those, those kids that are missing. Kind of surprised me. That was an unusual answer, I thought. It's like, how deep you want to go? Because this rabbit hole is very, very, very deep.
Atlanta Monster is an investigative podcast told week by week, with new episodes every Friday. A joint production between How Stuff Works and Tenderfoot TV. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Audio archives, courtesy of WSB News Film and Videotape Collection. Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia Libraries. For the latest updates, please visit AtlantaMonster.com or follow us on social media. Why do they call you popcorn? Ah. <laughs> when I was in Memphis, a first office agent, brand new out of the FBI Academy, Andy was my training agent. Andy was about seven or eight years older than me, a little more experienced in the Bureau. And Andy had a three-year-old daughter, Karen, uh, who's now in her 50s, and she couldn't say the last name Procopio. What came out was popcorn. She, she called me popcorn, Mr. Popcorn, and it stuck. <laughs> do you like popcorn? Sure. Catch HBO Max's new limited series, The Murders at White House Farm, now streaming. Based on the shocking true story, in 1985, five family members were murdered at their isolated farm. Initial evidence pointed towards a murder-suicide committed by one of the family members. However, one detective refused to accept this, diving deeper into the evidence and unraveling the mysterious layers of The Murders at White House Farm, now streaming only on HBO Max. Hey guys, it is Bobby Bones. I want to tell you about Make It Up As We Go, one of the coolest podcasts coming out this year, brought to you exclusively by Unilever's Noor and Magnum Brands and featuring original music by Scarlett Burke, creator, director, and executive producer, and co-creator Jarrett Gutstadt. This is an incredible inside look to the behind-the-scenes of Nashville writing rooms and features superb acting by Billy Bob Thornton, myself, and Miranda Lambert. There's a killer soundtrack that you can stream alongside original episodes, which drop every week only on the iHeart Podcast Network in association with Audio Up Media. 